going on everybody welcome in to a special edition of the daily energy news beat stand-up year in review here on this gorgeous tuesday december 26th 2023 as always i'm your humble correspondent michael tanner coming to you from an undisclosed location here in dallas texas joined by the executive producer of the show the purveyor of the show and the director and publisher of the world's greatest website energynewsbeat.com Stuart turley merry christmas oh man it was i just you know I, i ate a little too much but hey i did michael It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, but I want to give a shout out to all of our listeners. We have had a fantastic, the staff is putting together our year-end numbers, Michael. Preliminary, we've had 5.5 million article reads on our transcribed articles on energynewsbeat.co. Unbelievable. We've had over a million downloads for Energy Newsbeat. We've had over 1.5 million with our other podcast with David Blackman. We're going to be at about, I'm guessing, 7 million impressions or more for all of our band. That is phenomenal that we just have, we wouldn't be anywhere without our staff and our listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it's by no fault. It's, it's by no goodwill between Stu and I that we've <laughs> So it's, it's all our staff. It's all the listeners. We appreciate everybody who's tuned in this entire year. I can't say thank you um, for everybody who's reached out, said they enjoyed the show. Um, we, we could sit here and, and list off, you know, every single one of you guys, but, but, but we'll leave it to, you know, who you are. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just leave this up to the staff to go ahead and pick out some of our top stories. We appreciate everybody. As remember guys, the news and analysis you're going to hear in this year in review is brought to you by world's greatest website, www.energynewsbeat.com. The best place for all your energy news Stu and the team as always. And if year round do a tremendous job of keeping that website up to speed with everything you need to know to be at the tip of the spear when it comes to the energy business, you can um, check out the description below Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube for all links, uh, timestamps so you can jump ahead, figure out your top segments from the year. Um, go ahead and tell us in YouTube exactly um, which are your favorite segments um, as you listen to this. And, and we'll be glad to interact with you there. You can check out the email, the show questions at energynewsbeat.com, dashboard.energynewsbeat.com, data news combo product. It's been a long year, Stu. I'm going to leave it up to the, the, the year in review. Have a Merry Christmas, folks. We hope it was great for you. Happy New Year. Uh, the U.S. has billions for wind and solar in projects. Good luck plugging them in. This pretty cool article from, like, a, like you said, from the New York Times. There's a couple big things that has happened around the world, and this one is really sparking it. And there are more than. 8,100 energy projects. The vast majority of them are wind, solar, and batteries. Our friends over there at Fry Battery out of Norway are coming in to take care of this as well, too. But here's the problem. This is from our perspective. The interconnection process has become the number one project killer, said Piper Miller, vice president of market development at Pine Gate Renewables, a major solar power and battery developer. Michael, it's a brain trust issue as well. Two things really that are in this article. The EU is having to print money to catch up. Because now the brain trust, just like Fry Energy coming across the pond, is now taking up a lot of those dollars. And they're having to create the same thing to attract people to go to Europe. 
The brain trust, people are fighting for these project engineers, Michael. You can't get people approved to work on all of these projects, wind, solar. The supply chains are not there. You may have the money. You may not get it done. It's going to. I mean, think about this. I mean, it's just that PJM interconnection, the one that stretches all the way from Illinois to New Jersey that we that will actually I think we should probably cover next um, because it fits right in. But think about this. They've announced a freeze on new applications until 2026 so it can work through the already backlog of thousands of of proposals, mostly for renewable energy. So that's the interesting part is it's not just about, hey. Can we build and spin up a wind farm? It's, it's where does the actual electricity tie into the grid? You've been on it for years, Stu. Don't hurt yourself patting yourself on the back. But here's the thing, like Meredith uh, Angwin, who uh, shortened the grid, uh, she brought up and David Blackman just talked about this in their podcast as well, too. The grid. And then I talked about it with Don Deers, uh in my podcast. You have to add 180 percent when you bring in wind or uh, solar for additional uptime guarantee instead of the normal 20%. So it is just nuts on this, Michael. Think about this. Um, I love halfway down the article, it it is one of the bigger titles is imagine if we paid for highways this way. A potentially bigger problem for solar and wind in that is in many places around the country, the local grid is clogged, unable to absorb more power. That means that if a developer wants to build a new wind farm, it may not just have to pay for a simple connecting line, but also for deeper else upgrades elsewhere. Get this, Stu. These costs can be unpredictable. In 2018, EPD North America Renewable Energy Developer proposed a 100 megawatt wind farm in southwestern Minnesota. Estimated it would have to spend $10 million to connect it to the grid. But after the grid completed its analysis, EDP learned upgrades would likely cost upwards of $80 million and it canceled the project. You know what this does do? It creates a whole new problem. When proposed energy projects drop out of the queue, the grid operator often has to redo the studies for other pending projects and ship costs to other developers, which could trigger more cancellations and delays. Done, done, done. It's and a there's six two. things you said in there, Michael. There's six things. I mean, the number one that I just said a second ago was there's a brain trust missing from these people that can go through and analyze power physics and everything else. That's the number one job. It used to be IT folks. No, nah, it's brain trust for, for energy uh, yeah. trying to get things on the grid. Hey, let's start with our buddy Pioneer Sheffield predicting 90 to $100 oil by early summer. I love me some Sheffield. He is one of the best, coolest cats in the uh, entire in- industry. And uh, the article says uh, Sheffield is talking to the an- analysts and he says, we remained uh, highly constructive on oil prices, Sheffield told analysts. I'm still very optimistic that we'll move back into the 90 to 100 range sometime early this summer as we move and get away from this 78 to 88 swing in Brent prices. Time out. Uh, this is what everybody does, though. They couch their oil price by giving me Brent, which trades at a seven to ten dollar premium to West Texas Intermediate, which Pioneer and, and most other companies that produce out of the Permian Basin get paid off that index, not Brent. So I do find it hilarious that you know he's talking about his oil price prediction and he chooses the international benchmark versus the one that sits in his backyard. But I, I won't get um, hung up there. So continue. Uh, 
the the other piece of this is uh, Pioneer expects to operate an average of 24 to 26 horizontal drilling rigs Ooh. in Midland. That's a lot of riggage, dude. That's a lot that, of that's a lot of riggage. We need to make that into a t-shirt. I don't know if I've ever heard that that one before. Um, I mean, Pioneer is probably one of the better positioned companies with their acreage in order to drill. I mean, they have vast, right. you know, what is probably considered lower tier one at this point, but decent acreage that at these prices, even at $75, make very good economic sense. Let me it's ask you this. Yeah, let me ask you this, Michael. Uh, it says citing significant capital savings on a per foot basis of lateral wells in excess of 15,000 feet. Pioneer said expects to place more than 100 of these extra long wells on production this year. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's that's super interesting. And I think you're seeing a shift of, you wow. know, a shift into these super long ladders. And we're talking 15,000 feet is three miles of lateral length. I know in, in, in the DJ base and Oxy is doing some, some pretty crazy wells that are getting three, four miles. I just saw a permit for a, um, a Woodford well up there in Oklahoma. That was 26,000 feet of uh, total measure depth. So I think that works wow. out to like four miles. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, Stu, what they're doing. And I think part of the reason why is because you can, in high oil price environments, which in which wells are fairly economical and you can really right. churn and burn this tier one acreage, the longer you go, it, it does, there is a, on a well by well basis, some economics of scale by increasing the lateral length. You can increase the lateral length by a thousand feet and see a Let's give, let's say, for example, a hundred thousand uh, barrel per, you know, thousand foot. And that's a bad example. Let's say, let's say 25,000 per thousand foot of lateral length. Well, if you go over 15,000 feet, your costs may not rise linearly. They may slope off a little bit while your EUR continues to rise. And at right. these prices, you can afford to be, you can, you know, a $22 million AFE, which is probably what it's going to cost to go drill one of these wells. You can swallow that. Because you're gonna, you, you're still gonna be able to make your money back in six to eight months, you know. And especially if you're quote unquote highly constructive on oil prices, then there's really only a time to go up from here because you might be able to lock in these rigs at seventy five dollar, you know, service company prices when it comes right. to a hundred. You might there could be some savings. So if that's your thesis, it does make sense. I, I do think it'd yeah. be hilarious. I, you know, we talked on Friday, Stu, specifically about. Um, the rumor that Pioneer was going to buy range resources. They had to uh, announce a right. press release and say it's going to happen. I was on Twitter today and, and I fell out of my seat. I got to give a shout out. This is one of the first off the name of this, the name of this Twitter account at insolvent shit co. I mean, it just, <laughs> I'm dying. Whoever came up with brilliant, but the title goes chestnut checkers. Uh, Andy, if you don't mind throwing up the meme for everybody on YouTube, it goes chess, not checkers. So you've got the Winnie the Pooh meme where half the time he's sitting there just right. looking scummy and then the other half he's in his suit smiling. First section, grinding on a model to evaluate whether M&A adds shareholder value or not. Part two, leak rumor to Bloomberg and make that 1.30 p.m. tea time. I'm telling you, it's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. They were like, oh, let's just leak to the yeah. press, see what happens. Oh, stock down 4%, pull it. Pull it, don't do it. <laughs> Absolutely funny. So, um, I mean, getting back to this, um, this article, Stu, Pioneer is going to be able to drill these long wells that will, you know, even if they're over AFE, they'll be able to make money. But I do find it funny that, you know, now all of a sudden we've got, you know, I love how I have a hard time 
as an economist predicting commodity prices. I think that's, I think oil and gas companies should not be in the business of predicting oil prices. You should be in the business of producing uh, oil and gas for as cheap as possible so that right. whenever the price does go down to a bad level, you're able to continue to at least keep the lights on. And when it goes up to an extremely high level, you're able to keep those low operated assets, invest more into drilling and really ramp up production because you really make most of your money on these oil wells in the first six months of production. So it really doesn't matter what the strip price is four years out when you're drilling these new wells, because all you care about is that first six months. Uh, but here we've got Scott Sheffield, CEO of one of the largest companies um, in the oil and gas business. He's, you know, now we're predicting oil prices. So this should be fun. Hey, he's a good dude. What do you got next? Tesla's uh, Germany plant. I'm actually quite happy about this because I do like Elon and I'm very happy for the Germans with this. Might as well make it off of a uh, uh, American company. Tesla's Germany plant is producing 4,000 cars per week, three weeks ahead of schedule. This is pretty amazing, Michael. Uh, Tesla will be uh, compelling $25,000 electric vehicle that is also fully autonomous, Elon said this time. Wow. After an ugly start to the 2023 campaign, Tesla shares have now more than doubled off their lows this year. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty incredible what Elon Musk has been able to do. You know, first off, I think, you know, I don't think the autonomous driving really gets enough doesn't get talked about as much you know, about Tesla. I think everyone talks about the electric. They talk about the batteries, the clean energy. Right. I mean, really what's going to make Tesla valuable is will they will they achieve what would be considered full self-driving or FSD? I'm, Who I'm knows? Really but if they do, but if yep. they do, it's licensable software that can be licensed to any other company and all you need and, and they really become a software company. And I think Elon knows that. And I, I I've I've been I've listened to enough podcasts with him, um, specifically in the Lex Friedman show where he's basically gone so far as to admit that Tesla is a software play and eventually might even be outsourcing and not even produce cars, but just produce software that goes into cars. But for now, they do make an incredible car. It's clearly not twenty five thousand dollars for an for a uh, electric vehicle. That's that's a lie. Um, well, I think no, it's what a forty five fifty now. It's at least double that. Oh, it's way more than that. But uh, the original idea for affordable Tesla was announced by Elon back in twenty twenty. Tesla will make a compelling twenty five thousand dollar electric vehicle. That's also it was leaked from the company's California plant. Mm-hmm. So, no, nice. Uh, Atlantic LNG to lay off some staff. And this is sad. We hate anybody getting laid off. As recent global events have been demonstrated, the LNG industry is dynamic. Uh, they shut down one of their trains. They have four trains uh, and they are now down to three and it's because the limitations of the exports that are going on right now. Atlantic is one of the largest producers of LNG and is owned by the National Gas Company of Trinidad and Tobago and Shell, BP, and the Chinese Investment Corporation. <laughs> Michael, here's a tidbit. Guess who Boston and New England, the, the story we had yesterday on New England Power? Mm-hmm. They buy from this company. (laughs) 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 Uh, Of course they do. 
Oh, yeah. I just thought I'd share that a little bit of laughter. Let's go to India. Coal is back in business. Michael, we just ran this story about King Cole last week again, and now we're running another one. King Cole is coming back with a big bang, said Anil Kumar Jha, the chairman of uh, Jindal Power. Holy smokes. There's no talk at all of phasing down coal at the event. Rather, the debate centered around on how just high coal's demand will rise with the consensus that it will jump to 1.4 billion tons per annum by 2030 from around 1 billion tons currently. How in the world, Michael, I want to ask you this one right now. How in the world can India make their quote unquote climate goals by increasing their goal from now on? I think everything is a trade-off. I think if they don't increase their energy output and continue to provide low cost energy to their billion plus growing population, they're going to find themselves in a position of very negative growth or not negative growth, but, but slowing growth. I mean, they're one of the fastest growing economies right now. I mean, I think you know, they we just took China in population. Yep. And for, from an economy standpoint, they're booming right now. And if you, we've seen it here in the United States, what's the easiest way to trigger a recession? Make the cost of energy skyrocket. Europe, energy prices have skyrocketed. So, the, the, you know, right. India's continued to buy Russian crude. Why? Because they support the Russians? No, but they like cheap oil. They like okay. cheap fuel. And so they're going to lean that way as long as the incentive structure remains the way it is. I mean, you can commit to anything, Stu. I'm going to commit to going on a diet starting tomorrow, but we'll check in in two months, see how I'm doing. You know? I'm holding my breath. <laughs> oh, exactly. So you're holding, that's about as long as the diet will last. But if if you can keep, if, if, if there's no incentive for me to, if, you know, you're not going to pay me for one month, which, you know, boo-hoo, it may encourage me to go on a diet. Um, but um, so I, I say all that to say, they're doing the right thing for them. Exactly. You can't necessarily be mad about it. Would I wish they were buying our LNG? Sure. But where would the LNG come from? We can't export it enough to satisfy their need quite yet. They're going to go get it from Qatar. Right. Now, here's the thing. Uh, yesterday, we talked about China, how much uh, they are building. They produce uh, unbelievable amounts of energy via coal. They're doing two a week, you know, uh, just yep. by that. So anyway, I just wanted to shout out. I And you've always heard me say this. I love India. I love the leadership for trying to get uh, low cost power. And I know you're shaking your head. Yes, I, you're already tired of saying it. Financing the energy transition. Follow the money. We need a plan to provide the lowest kilowatt per hour along the path. The cost of moving the energy sector toward net zero is huge, but new research reveals that companies are increasingly prepared to invest and funding is increasingly available. Let's find out those sectors, Michael. Coming around the corner. What are energy companies alloc where are energy companies al allocating capital? 42% of energy companies are investing in energy transition initiatives. 
11 per, or 28% now is in uh, returns to investors and shareholders. It used to be 11%. Ooh. Wow. All right. Capital investments in traditional businesses in oil and gas, Michael. This is critical. It used to be two years ago, 32%. Now it's down to 20%. And three years, three, two years ago, Michael, you and I had on our show, we could pull the tape. Uh, we needed trillions of dollars just to meet uh, the decline curves if demand lay, uh, just remained flat. The IEA, the International Energy Association uh, Agency, said just recently, two weeks ago, that energy demand will remain constant for a while. Oops. The International Energy Crime Syndicate, you mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll leave my true thoughts alone on that in the E and the EU. I mean, excuse me, the the UN. Yeah, the IEACC. Yeah, the UN. <laughs> okay. Uh, how will they fund this? Uh, how will energy companies finance their energy transition initiatives? Private equity, 40%. Existing balance sheet, or Michael, I'm assuming this would be free cash flow, 32%. Mm. Equity capital markets, 29%. Data capital markets, 20%. Debt capital markets, debt. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, old Moses, me, friends. Bank loans, 19%. Export credit agency, 40%. Hey, I went to OSU, but that is a lot more than 100%. Oh. I know. I was going to, I was asking. I was doing the same thing. I was like, hey, that seems like, uh, <laughs> is this printing money? I got to go do this some is, research. This is, is this? this is, this is how you start inflation. I, this has got to be printing money. I, I think there's two things, Stu. I think it's clear. I think it's clear. I think the, 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 the bigger shift is this. You mentioned it in the big summit. Where are energy companies allocating capital? Returns to investors and shareholders up from 11 to 28% in capital investment in traditional businesses down about the same amount, 32 to 20. So it's just a flip. People are saying, okay, instead of spending all of this money in putting it into the ground, just give it back yep. to me. Because think about it, the track record of oil and gas spending capital from 2012 to 2020 to 2018 was terrible. And it's still kind of is terrible. Right. Drilling's a tough business. You know, oh, actually yep. spending capital and spending it wisely is a tough business. So I'm not surprised that is flip. I think what, you know, this whole 42% investing in the energy transition, are we sure about that? Like define energy transition. Like, are we talking yeah, about like- I I got to find out if it includes nuclear and natural gas now, because yeah, I mean, if it is these, this, this article is then going green. Yeah. Uh, you know, so funny article. I, I was like, okay, if you put peel out the, uh, Coming from the bank balance sheet, that might make a little good, but who knows? Okay, I got to go do some research on that article. Sorry about that. Market rally shakeout may be bullish, uh, may be a bullish signal. JP Morgan eyes First Republic after FDIC takeover. Michael, this concerns me a bunch. The FDIC seen taking over First Republic. Uh, banking giants, including JP Morgan Chase and PNC Financial Services, are looking to buy First Republic following a government seizure. The Wall Street Journal reported Friday night, citing sources. 
The FDIC asked for initial bids by Sunday. Bloomberg reported on Sunday after, I was going to say gouging, but gauging initial interest. Bank of America is mulling it. Michael, this is systemic of an overall problem. And as the government keeps bailing out banks, it's going to be an issue. What are your thoughts? Well, this comes back to the issue of these larger banks. Like, like I, I think it's important to note that JP Morgan would need a regulatory waiver to buy First Republic. So they clearly think they're going to get the waiver if they're all right. spending, if they're, you know, I mean, they, they, they got their whole team working on I mean, what's kind of funny is JP Morgan does M&A for other companies. Imagine being on the M&A deal team for right. JP Morgan. That's got to be an interesting deal team. Um, I'd love to get, I'd love to hear some stories about that. Not for dealing, um, but Where this is all going to lead is, again, Bank of America is among some of the banks buying first look. It's much like in the oil and gas business, you're seeing massive consolidation because of just the way the the equity and debt markets are structured. It favors big versus small. I think that's what you're going to see happen in the banking industry. You're going to to see all of these regional banks get swallowed up by, you know, much larger regional banks. And then those larger regional banks will get swallowed up eventually by JP Morgan. And you'll have, you know, 10 to 20 banks throughout the country. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Probably on average, a bad thing. There may be some good things about it. You don't need to worry about, you know, one one of the advantages of having just huge banks is liquidity. You don't have to worry about a run on deposits. The FDIC then can worry about other different things. Now, having all of you, having all of your deposits in one bank can also lead to massive, you know, we we already think Wall Street has too much power and too much control over our lives. Imagine if if JP Morgan had all the power. Now, I like if now. I think the thing to be careful of is in this case, yes, I actually, you know, if I'm going to put my my money anywhere, it's going to be in JP Morgan, mainly based off what Jamie Dimon has said regarding the energy transition and his stance on oil and gas. He was one of the right. few CEOs that sat up in front of Congress and said, moving and getting off oil and gas would be the road to hell. He, he, did. he said that. That's a yes. quote directly from him. Now, what happens when a new CEO takes over and doesn't believe that? What happened? Right. The problem with centralization is you're counting on the people in charge. You may like the people in charge now, but do we like, would we, will we like them going forward? So there has to be a balance. We have to figure out a way to ride this ship, but it may, JP Morgan may be the only company that could buy this. So I'll be interested to see what happens, but I think that's what's going to happen. Consolidation yeah. among banks and we'll be generally worse off because of it. I will give you a great, great feedback, Michael. Uh, One small thing, and and you kind of said, what do you think uh, about more big banks? It would be easier for the government to control the rollout of the Hamilton project, which is the digital currency, which is the end of financial freedom for the U.S. So that to me is even more scary on that part. Sorry. Oh, you're good. The Hamilton project. Um, but, uh, but no, you know, obviously first Republic, they're in trouble, their stocks down, you know, it's basically down over a hundred percent. We've got huge quarter one deposit outflows. You know, (laughs) there was an attempt to, to quasi rescue it, but the FDIC came in and just said, no, we're putting you up for bid right now. Someone will buy it. They won't necessarily um, have to go into receivership. So I think that'll be convenient for everybody, but um, we'll see. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in a regional bank right now. Uh, No energy better positioned for any kind of recession analyst says, Michael, uh, I'm seeing this all over the place. Investors are calling and asking, and they're saying things like, what in the world do we do? 
It's energy, baby. You know, it's all about energy. And Chevron, Exxon, post robust Q1 profits despite falling gas, they're still got the profits. And for the ones that are good management, good numbers, like you and I have always said, they're good investments. Um, There's a couple quotes in here that are just fabulous. Roger Reed says, always a tough question to answer for the company or for us. So I think if you look at what's typically made M&A work in this space, it's more often occurred during a time of stress, meaning low commodity prices or other uh, extraneous event that for reasons creates mergers. It doesn't mean it can't happen. We just would be saying watch for those moments as opposed to just waking up one day and seeing everything. You know, what this is saying is uh, last year, the Dow uh, Occidental was number one on the Dow on their uh, Dow exchange. So when you sit back and take a look, Oxy number one, you know, that's only one investment. You have 50% of the EMP operators in the U.S. Uh, are privately held. They're good investments as well. But you have real estate, Michael, coming around the corner. Um, I was watching Maria Bartolomo this morning and the real estate in San Francisco and um, New York, I think it was 48% is now vacant of commercial space. There is going to be a lot of commercial people looking to get out. So what you're going to see is a run on minerals. You're going to see a run on things with passive income. Anyway, I'm sorry for rolling on that, but I thought this was incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think he accurately points out, and I thought, you know, um, Roger Reed, he's a Wells Fargo analyst, so think think what you want about about their ability to predict. But I think he he, he poses what I think is the right way to think about an Exxon Mobil from X, you know, a a perspective of M and A, because really what they're talking about is. You know, while all these other things are crashing, where possibly should companies be looking at in terms of energy M&A? Well, when you're looking for an acquisition, are you looking for future drilling sites or more of a decarbonization play, which I think is key? There's two driving forces that are going to keep energy high, obviously exactly. commodity prices, and that goes into the future drilling locations, but then also the decarbonization for all the stuff that's going on in the Inflation Reduction Act. Who says there's not an Inflation Reduction Act too? And all of a sudden, CCUS is thrown in there. Um, it, here's the thing. There's absolutely zero reason to fight the clowns and, you know, fighting the clown. Great. Let them do it. Go make some money. And then, you know, punch them in the nose or squeak their nose or squeak the horn later and just go put your money where you can make money. And it's in natural gas, nuclear, uh, modular nuclear. Watch. All you got to do is watch out for yourself. Louisiana. Oil and gas still has a place in the future of energy. Michael, this is a great story. Uh, Louisiana is uh, positioned to have opportunity to capitalize on changing global market demand and lead in the future of energy by bringing online new advancements in the industry, such as carbon capture and storage, CC, US and utilization. I want to throw that in there. Blue and green hydrogen and renewable diesel. Uh, Michael, there's about 16 really nice big projects going on in Louisiana. And I respect the leadership because they are doing renewables. They are doing oil and gas. Louisiana is home to the Haynesville um, uh, uh, 
formation and lots of natural gas. You've got so much going to the Gulf that they have a uh, just a huge amount of good things going on. Besides having Tyrus off of uh, Gutfeld there. I mean, Gutfeld's a rock star. and uh, His ratings are insane. I saw he's the number one late night host. Oh, absolutely. And, and I would like to have... Uh, uh, Gutfeld and uh, Tyrus and Cat on our podcast if they're ever listening. So just want to throw I'm that sure, out. I'm sure they're listening. I'm sure they're getting their editors on it right away. Oh, absolutely. But you know that anyway. I hats off to Louisiana. Absolutely a positive uh, article. Uh, they've got 18 billion dollars in projects announced for capture core, carbon capture, renewable biofuels, blue and green production of hydrogen and ammonia. While they're doing all of the normal oil and gas in the Haynesville, wonderful way to do it. So yeah, and they're they're taking the. I mean, I think the 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 infrastructure and investment in the CCUS really will be the bridge between the old and the new. If this is where yes. things are going, regardless. I mean, if we're gonna if scope one emissions are going away, CCUS is the quickest way to do that. So I think this is smart overall in terms of a strategic play. Right. And hey, aren't you proud of me? I didn't pick a Debbie Downer or a Karen Downer story. Uh, You know, I got you one in there, man. That was great. That was great. Ford loses nearly $60,000 for every electric vehicle sold. Is that a good business sustainable model? No, that doesn't add up. I I, I was like, the car maker was on a roll at the time. Let's see here. Uh, it was planning on starting a production of the F-150 Lightning, the electric version of the iconic best-selling 150. Uh, you and I have already talked about this. Uh, let me get into the losses here. It appears that the Ford Model E recorded a loss before interest and taxes of $700 million. This is $100 million more than the fourth quarter of 2022. The margins are also in the red. The EBIT earnings before interest and taxes, uh, which allows investors to assess the true cost of the activity, is negative 102.1%. And this is more than twice as much as fourth quarter in 2022, in which the EBIT margin was negative 40%. Um, on the revenue side, it amounted to 700 million for the first three months of the year. It's less than half of the 1.6 billion in revenue generated by the Ford Model E in the last quarter of 2022. We're seeing some real trends there, Michael. People are not wanting to buy electric. Yeah, I mean, they they, they specifically mention, you know, one of the, the the third headlines here is gas cars are fine. I mean, they're not necessarily seeing a dip in sales across their non-electric fleet, which I think is is interesting and probably feeds into what, you know, really the other two stories you've got lined up, which is specifically more and more Americans don't want electric cars, which has been a theme of this earnings season. I mean, remember, we've just gone through 158 companies release their earnings. More are coming on the way. We're being able to dive in and really in a full year of all of these companies doing EVs, been able to sort of look behind the glass and see a little bit into their balance sheet. It's not good. No. And uh, Siemens uh, lost $1.7 billion in their wind farm division. Yeah. I want Okay. I think, and this is just my personal opinion on this before I go to the next story, which is related to this story. 
And that is the infrastructure bill uh, actually, I think, has caused part of the problem, Michael, from the standpoint that uh, the Biden administration goes, OK, look, tax credits. No tax credits. No, you get no you get no tax credits for you. Uh, I mean, they're just like they're, they're, they're the infrastructure credit. bill or the Inflation Reduction Act. Both of them are porculous, but it was. Anyway, the, yeah, because I was going to say there was the porculous bill was before the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act had the uh, big tax savings in the car. And, and wasn't uh, the wasn't the porculous bills what it was it's dubbed now, but wasn't it called like Build Back Better? Or oh, something? yeah. Like there was yeah, some yeah, weird it, phrase. It, 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 you know, you just can't buy this kind of entertainment. Next story here, man. More and more Americans don't want electric cars. Um, battery power cars seem like the next best thing, but growing Americans aren't ready to give up internal combustion. We live in too big of an area, Michael. I I travel from state to state. Top line metrics on overall EV market share, availability, affordability have been on a long term upward trend. The market research firm said, but beneath those headline numbers, we are starting to see some consumer behaviors that suggest a possible bifurcation of the automotive um, marketplace. Let me put it to you this way. People are going to be able to have transportation in everywhere but California and New York. If you want to live and own a car, you can be anywhere in the U.S. except in those cities or even Chicago. I mean, that's just the way that they're planning on doing it, Michael. Yeah, I think there's there's a few hurdles specifically on like the user acceptance side that I think this article points out. One, respondents in this you know survey were very concerned about their performance in extreme temperatures. I think that's the first thing, like, you know, and no one in Colorado is people in Colorado. Yes, they have a Tesla, but they're not taking it to the mountains. No. And that's their second car. Yes, exactly. It's like EVs are people's second car. The When the discussion shifts from second car to primary car, you maybe have you might have me. But I that's but that's a long way away. This is an interesting thing. Obviously, the the, the majority of boomers and pre-boomers aren't considering EVs. That's clear by these stats. This is interesting. 33% of Gen Z told this survey that they were either somewhat unlikely or very unlikely. Oh, that, that's a that's not an insignificant portion of the population. No, Gen, no less. I was surprised by that number, but I'll tell you what, I mean, you sit back and take a look at me. Uh, why? Cause I can buy a $15,000 used car and be just as happy and think about the difference between that. That buys a lot of gas. $80,000 buys a lot of gasoline. Yeah. I mean, me and you have talked about this. It would be fun to get corporate podcast Teslas, but that's a second vehicle. That goes back to your original comment. It's a second vehicle in most applications. There are very few applications, in my opinion, unless right. you live in like a dry climate, like Cal like Southern California, and you don't necessarily have a long commute, is going to probably be, you could be your primary car. But for the vast majority of Americans, it can't right. happen. Let's stop at Texas first. Coming around the corner, uh, I'm sitting here in Dallas, and I've been in West Texas for the last four months. But uh, as we take a look at Texas must upgrade its energy grid to accommodate the new renewable power. Some interesting stats on this. We know that ERCOT is the grid manager for Texas. Texas is the number one in uh, wind energy and second in solar. Wind energy alone produces 21% of all electricity in the state, according to the uh, American Clean Power Association. 
this is pretty darn good. Here's where we're still under threats in Texas for the potential of rolling blackout. Rolling blackouts are because the amount of stress that renewables put on the grid. Just a few months ago, or I believe it was two months ago, uh, the Texas legislature they have approved for more natural gas plants. That seems to me a very good standby power. However, they're also looking at adding in a bunch of storage. Adding in storage brings up a couple hot points on me. So without expanding ERCOT's electrical transmission network and storage capacity, congestion and curtailments will rise, said the IEA. The strong projected growth in renewable energy in ERCOT over the next decade could be constrained by transmission capacity. I believe it was around 3 billion, 3.5 billion is what it took to get the transmission lines from uh, West Texas where all the wind farms uh, are coming across. That was just for cost to get into the transmission lines to the Dallas area as well. So let's take a look at my expectations. One of my biggest hot buttons for storage. How much does it cost? But the single most important thing to me is renewable batteries. Not many of them out there have been able to answer that. In fact, I've only found one battery company, one uh, storage battery company that has been able to answer that. And that's Fry Battery out of Norway. Fry Battery is awarded a hundred million EU innovative fund grant. I get to have a interview. I interview uh, Jeremy on a Friday and I've interviewed Tom before their uh, CEO. And now I'm interviewing the president. They are producing a lot of new jobs and new things in, in uh, the United States. So Fry Battery has their uh, batteries are renewable or recyclable. So if you have big batteries and they're not recyclable, it's not really eco-friendly, is it? So as the Tom Jensen, who I interviewed, he says, we are delighted from the, with the news that we have received from the EU's innovation fund to support Friars Giga Arctic project. This grant is a recognition that batteries represent the key catalyst to the energy transition, supporting regional energy security through faster deployment of renewable energy. Moreover, the significant financial commitment provides timely support to development of the Giga Arctic. It was uh, been under development since June of 2020, and it is going to be 100% powered by 100% hydroelectricity. This, to me, is a phenomenal project. And when you sit back and take a look, recyclable batteries... They've got new technology coming around in the battery storage. They are really looking at renewables in the hydro. I'm all in with Fry Battery. So well done. Cyber risk in the big picture. Brian Tepper from Hawaii's Electric uh, Cisco and Information Assurance Manager in 2018 pointed out to them in an interview, more advanced the system, the larger attack service becomes. Surface, excuse me. Our grid's attack surface area has been steadily getting bigger over the last two decades. Not only is this going to, as he's pointed out back then, 
It's even extending out to anything that you have, kind of like your stove, electric stoves. <laughs> and, you know, that's why you want to keep your gas one. And this one's kind of interesting. Electric cars have been more potential to transform for the world for the better. I might agree with that. They provide env- environmental an- uh, advantages. Yeah, it depends. Jury is still out. But when you're talking about they found everything from the possibility of hackers being able to track users with vulnerabilities that may expense expose home and corporate Wi-Fi networks to a breach. Pull your car into your garage and it may be snooping around your house for your access point and uh, your phone. Elon just uh, tweeted yesterday, phones are not secure. Let me see. Anything that Elon puts out and is that specific worry. So anyway, and there was an article that just came out in conjunction that was actually a little ahead of this one from TechCrunch. Taking a look, hackers could remotely turn off lights, honk, mess with Tesla's uh, infotainment center. Almost sounds like me when I was in college. So when you take a look at how the hackers can now get in with just a Bluetooth, which is what they used to call a PAN, personal area network a billion years ago, those they could walk up to the car when you're in range of Bluetooth. Here's where it gets a little uh into this now is that once they get in via Bluetooth, they can hop over into the underlying core of the software. Once you get into the core, it your all bets are off on what you can do. So I'm not sure that I want that much control allowed to a car. So with that, can't wait till I can get a Tesla as my second car. Not ready to have one as a primary yet. When global oil demand to reach record high in 2023. This is, you know, out of the IEA. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read a lot here from the article because what this is, is their, what they call, as I mentioned, their latest oil market report uh, out of our favorite energy analysts over at the IEA. Um, 100% credible. We, we, we subscribe to every word they do. Um, top line numbers, global oil demand will increase by 2.2 million barrels per day to reach a record high of 102.1 million barrels per day in 2023, courtesy of our favorite data analysts. Um, to dive into those numbers a little bit, China's going to go ahead and account for about 70% of global gains, really off the back of their petrochemical use. The quote out of the IEA says, China's widely anticipated reopening has so far failed to extend beyond travel and services with economic recovery losing steam after a bounce back year. Yet, they're accounting for 70% of the global gains. So we love a little marketing twist there. IR guy of the week right there. Uh, they do actually project some growth to slow to 1.1 million barrels per day. Um, in 2024, the quotes there saying the world oil demand is coming under pressure from challenging economic environment, not the least because of a dramatic tightening of monetary policy in many advanced and developing countries over the past 12 months. Interesting. No mention of renewables. It's all in the global financial. Interesting. Interesting little pivot there. They forecast global oil production to rise by 1.6 million barrels to 101.5 million barrels per day as output from non-OPEC production. Nations is um, expected to increase by 1.9 million barrels per day. Um, they also see global oil supply rising to 102.8. So they think fairly in balance with about 700,000 barrels overbalanced. That's interesting because we're seeing prices rise right now. So that's what I find hilarious is that, you know, prices off the back of this rise when they show, whoa, maybe we're oversupplied now. You know, when we see um, oil supply, quote unquote, outstripping oil 
demand. Um, but again, I think a lot of what's going to is we're looking at that refined product. And I think some of the, the environment that we're seeing is the downstream capabilities. Observe global inventories rose by 19.4 uh, million barrels to its highest level since September 2021. World oil demand. I'm trying to just read down here. A forecast for global oil demand is China, blah, blah, blah. We also saw this. This is a separate IEA report. Fossil fuel investments are set to rise by more than 6% to around $950 billion for 2023 based on analysis from the announced spending of plant large and medium-sized oil, gas, and coal companies. So there, you know, again, I think you're going to, I think this is a, I didn't, this is not specifically for quarter four, as I mentioned in segment one, but I do think you're going to, you know, there is a sentiment of there was a lot of CapEx spent, maybe more than people expected on the back of what was higher oil prices, sort of the fleshing out of that process. So all in all, the IEA seems to be sort of bullish, sort of not. I find it funny how they think we're oversupplied. Everybody thinks we're going to be undersupplied. So the IEA trying to come out and and hmm, I don't know. I think they're using the same crayon Stu uses. So we're going to have to check their math on this one. Uh, Carrie's trip to China yields no breakthrough on climate. Uh, let's have a moment of silence for his trip. Okay. Um, that moment of silence went way too long. Sorry about that. The United States and China failed to reach new climate agreements despite productive conversations. Special climate envoy John Kerry said Wednesday after a four-day visit to Beijing, an outcome that underscores the tension between the two world's biggest carbon polluters and economies. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you want me to say. We fly carry out there private. You know, we get his staff out there. You know, they're staying at, you know, probably the Ritz Carlton over there in Beijing, you know. Right. He, he quotes here, Michael. We had a very extensive set of frank conversations and realized it was going to take a little bit more Perfect. work to break the new ground, said Kerry. Perfect. So we've agreed Perfect. we're going to meet intensively what a okay when you sit back and take a look at carrie carrie lied to the congress the other day he says do you does your family own a i've never owned an airplane well he's married to the heinz folks they've had jets we know that yes uh, it's, uh... so i still remember watching him testify in congress my dad was being shot at in vietnam and he was a draft dodger so I'm not a Kerry fan. We'll just leave that one alone. Now, normal climate diplomacy. Do what? <laughs> just, just okay. Uh, climate diplomacy between the U.S. and China is back on track. Hogwash. I'm going to call bull hockey on this one. It's because Kerry went over there to do this. Miss Producer, can you fly in this video? I'm going to show you in this next 32 second video. Sit back and take a look at this video. It is the Biden administration and and their funding of $14 million, I believe, of what John Kerry's office is all about. He's not even approved by the Congress. He's not even approved anywhere in this. So this 33 second video for our podcast listeners is very important. You'll hear some noises. These noises, Michael and I will tell you what's going on right as we come back from this 33 second John Kerry treating the U.S. customers. I mean, Stu. <laughs> 
Okay. That hurts. That hurts. You know, Michael, what'd you think of that? I mean, wasn't it kind of like the consumers are getting it in the nuts? I think, I mean, yeah, I think as always, I mean, this, I mean, of all the things we've got to worry about China with AI, them nuking us, them cutting off Taiwan for, you know, chips, you know, the, the, you know, their, their eventual invasion of Russia, you know, all right. the things we have to worry about with China and we've got to worry about climate change. Like I and, hate to agree with Mitt Romney, but he's got a great quote on this in here. He says, you know, you know, what, what was it? Oh, I missed it here. Let me pull it up here. Um, what does Mitt quote, say? Climate change is probably not our highest priority in dealing with China, but if we can get them to reduce their emissions, that would be a good thing. Senator Mitt Romney told Politico before okay. Wednesday's announcement. Like, that's how I feel. They're putting in two coal fired plants a weekend. What are the odds? Uh, huh? Make coal great again. Make coal great again. Hey, let's have a little bit of fun. Boy, that almost sounded like Putin. Hey. hey. Okay. Uh, recent grid reforms might not be enough for Virginia to hit its clean energy targets, advocates say. You know, Michael, this is a common theme. And when you sit back and take a look at job creation, wind solar capacity in the queue, and then you take a look, Virginia is on track to meet short-term carbon-free targets laid out in the sweeping Clean Economy Mm. Act of 2020. It's remarkable considering that 44,000 megawatts of wind and solar energy storage projects proposed across the state are still waiting in PJM's interconnection queue, which is, Michael... What is that? That is a regulations from the Biden administration holding this up. Oops. Now, here's another quote in here from Amon. He says, uh, even though Virginia is in good shape for the immediate future, more proactive transmission planning would really help. <laughs> Really? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Michael, you cannot put renewables on a grid without planning ahead. It does not work. You you cannot do it. And they're 180 percent higher in order to get it done. It's dumb. It's the pot call call calling the kettle black. This Amon, Dana Amon. Do you know what you know this person is? They're a policy analyst at the Natural Resources Defense Council, who I'm pretty sure was involved in writing the Inflation Reduction Act. So the policy analyst didn't think originally when they wrote the bill that maybe if we're going to inject all of this money into the economy via clean energy, we should at least have the ability for somebody to approve the permit. They're absolutely stupid. So this policy analyst should probably go work. It's probably out of the straight out of the IEA, straight from over here. And they're getting hired by the Natural Resources Defense Council, because clearly if you had seen this coming, you would have addressed this in the Clean Economy Act. Absolutely. Uh, Hilarious. Further down here, it says 5,200 megawatts of offshore wind. While she is cheered by the progress, though, so far, she's faced many hurdles. Michael, on 5,200 megawatts, let's talk about what that means to the grid. 5,200 megawatts may be the tag on that wind turbine for their capabilities of generation, but for a grid Balancing authority, being able to do that, let's divide that by 180. 
you're not going to be able to count on that wind in order to remain all the time. And I use about 5.2 megawatts of electricity every month to power all my screens. So I don't even buy it's that much. I just think it's hilarious. Everyone now is talking about, well, permitting, we got to refer permitting, we got to refer regulations. Like, you dummies, think of that beforehand. Get the regulations right before you start dumping all of this money in, or else it's just a cash grab and nothing's going to happen. Uh, personally, I think it's a cash grab, but we'll leave that alone. Federal judge orders the Biden administration to uh, expand the Gulf of Mexico oil auction. I'm not sure who picked this picture, but it looks like uh, Diaper Dan there, uh, Biden, is uh, all grumped out. I mean, yeah. that was... Uh, so the Louisiana-based judge concluded that the Interior Department probably moved wrongly at the 11th hour to yank roughly 6 million acres off the auction block. Whoa. Ocean, the Department, the Interior Department of Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Boy, that sounds like a uh, rat cave of, uh, uh, what do you want to call that one, bureaucracy? Yeah, Yeah, it's, yeah, not good. No, not not good. Uh, Rats get lost in there and then they have to finally come out. Never mind. Okay, the decision is a win for Louisiana, which it argued it stood to lose as much as 2.2 million in royalties. Oh, follow the money. Louisiana's not dumb. Uh, You know, it's, how else do these Counties make money. If you have oil in your right. county, the way I mean, it, there's a reason why Midland. I we could get into it for ye, we could we could we could go down this rabbit hole. But I think it's it's crazy that right. people don't think of second order effects. Why do all of the people who live around oil and gas love oil and gas? Right. I don't know because of the amount of economic stability and uplift it brings to the region. I don't know. Maybe you know it's not you know. It just well, it, it boggles my mind. People are like, well, uh, most people in, hate in Louisiana, oil and Michael. I don't know. They're great places to live. Now, Michael, you have to remember in Louisiana is also home to the uh, Haynesville, the uh, that oil field. I mean, the oil and gas field that uh, we have Chenier uh, coming out of all of that natural gas going to uh, Chenier and then being exported out. Do you know how much money the U.S. government is making out of the Haynesville in Louisiana? Now, in the grand scheme of things, $2.2 million is really not that much considering the amount of debt we're in. The problem is, this. It, it, don't it is think the, about the money, think about the supply of oil. We're already in a point where we are going to be undersupplied. What is the one few things that an American oil company can do that can move the needle realistically right. in, in terms of oil production? Well, it's offshore. There's not much onshore that's going to really move the needle. I mean, outside of ExxonMobil saying we're going to double our Permian spending, you know, Chevron and Pioneer all coming out saying we're all going to double our capital expenditure in the Permian. Okay, that maybe moves the needle. What does move the needle? You know, a a two billion dollar CapEx spend drilling four to five wells out in Louisiana, out in the offshore. That's, you know, 100, 150,000 barrels a day. Now you start seeing the needle get moved and and, and you start seeing that gap closing. So while, yes, $2.2 million, the counter argument is that's not that much. And look, they're saving the whales. We know where I stand on the whales. Kill them all. But 
What I do stand for is if we're if you're actually uh, talking about lowering oil prices, you've got to put more supply in. It's basic economics. So I think this is a short term. Woo, looks good for the administration. They strike this down, but in the long run, it's going to kill them. You know, this this judge overruled it. It'll be interesting to see if it actually takes place. This auction is supposed to take place on the twenty seventh, so hey, on Wednesday, it'll be interesting to see if that actually goes through. Hey, let me uh, do a little bit of uh, a shout out. Um, you, when you're doing a, uh, you're not going to be killing the whales uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. A, it's not a major thoroughfare for whales. B, uh, the sounding and all of the geo uh, work that has to be done with oil and gas rigs is nothing like what has to be done in the wind and the uh, offshore wind up on the East Coast. And that's a major contributor to the dead whales that you so aptly want to drop in and kill all the whales. And then I want to go ahead and drop them in the White House lawn. I think that would be great. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to leave it. So let's go to David Blackman. And again, uh, last week we talked about it, but he asserted himself last week uh, signaling the his predecessor, uh, Boris Johnson, that last week proposing to delay and modify some of the worst of them in a major address to the nation. So he had to do that because they were about to uh, leak. I talked to David about that. He proposed revisions to include delaying the ban on the sale of new diesel and gasoline cars from 2030 to 2035. So that's only a five year slip. But yet, did you hear the heads popping? Pow, 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 pow. I mean, they did not like that. But when you take a look at EVs, their affordability, being able to get everything, there's another article on Energy Newsbeat today that the used car EV market is just deteriorating. People can't even afford the used EVs. And the expense is between $5,000 and $22,000 to replace the batteries at the time they start becoming used. So I, I applaud uh, the prime minister for that. The political motiva uh, motivation that he had for making the policy changes was to put some space between his conservative party and the socialist Britain, uh, British Labor Party. As if on cue, the late labor leaders quickly obliged him, announcing less than 24 hours after his speech, if elected to a majority in upcoming elections, their party would quickly to bat the tennis ball back over the net and restore Johnson's unattainable goals. It's pretty sad when the consumers are at the, they're going to get hit with the bat and it's not the political parties, it's the consumers. Oil is headed to as high as $150 a barrel unless the U.S. government does more. Harold Ham, I want to just give a brief uh, outing or comment. I met Harold probably five years ago, maybe six years ago. And back then he was saying we are going to be down to 400 rigs. And we were at like a thousand rigs, Michael. And everybody was sitting there kind of going, there's no way. Sure enough. So the man, Harold, knows what he's talking about. So pay attention when he does talk. And his continental resources he bought back 
is I think they're providing 2 million barrels a day. They're a player. So let's talk about Harold's crude output in the Permian will at one day peak as it already has in rival shale fields as the other Balkan region and North Dakota and the Eagleford in Texas. Continental Chief Executive Doug Lawler said in an interview with Bloomberg, without exploration, you're going to see 120 to 150, he said. I guarantee you it's going to send a shock through the system. Now, how come? It's because the ESG mold is folding. Investors want their money back. They're quit investing in things. We're seeing the renewable. Nobody's bidding on wind farms now. (laughs) They can't. No, I'm with you. I just find it funny. The title, Harold Hamm asking the U.S. government to do more to control oil prices. Man. I would have not put that in my genie bottle of things I would have guessed would have happened two years ago. I'd see Harold Hamm at an event saying, we need more government intervention to lower oil prices. It's kind of it's a weird twilight zone we're living in. Well, in his book I have right over here, it's he's probably talking about in this telling just telling by the articles, uh, the author of the article. He definitely is. uh, He's referring to regulatory issues. So he he gets hammered by regulation. So I have a feeling that's what he was talking about. He does about. say without more policies encouraging new drilling, you're going to see more pressures. Well, that, on I agree with you. We should have more. I mean, I'm not against new policies. We should be, you know, for every policy we enact, we should get rid of two older policies. Well, the, so it, again, I'm just pointing out the fact that it is interesting. I didn't see that on my bingo card when I walked in the game beginning of the year. No. Harold Ham screaming for government regulation. I, I think there's a difference between policy and regulations. Mm-hmm. He is saying policy, which says drill, baby, drill. Regulatory issues say avoid the salamander. He, he appointed Chesapeake's old CEO as, as their new CEO, Doug Lawler. So we know exactly where this train's headed. Oops. How the transition push contributed to higher oil prices. This one just kind of writes itself. There's three bullet points that the author brings up. Anti-fossil fuel policies in the U.S. and Europe have led to lower investments in new projects. Wow. We saw that one coming. Michael, $4 trillion is what we need to invest just to meet the decline curves. Oh, okay. Uh, ExxonMobil CEO Woods, if we don't maintain some level of investment in the industry, you can end up running short of supply. Mm-hmm. All right. Only lowering global energy demand may lead to a situation which prices will remain under control. What does that mean? I think what you're what you're seeing is, I mean, that's a fancy word of saying stop driving, Stu. That's a fancy way of saying stay inside. Turn off your AC, shut down your electricity at night. I mean, it's it's that coded language that they're throwing in there. Did you see last a couple of days ago, Bloomberg or somebody had an article about why bugs have more protein in it than you think? I mean, they're trying to code us in order to, to use less energy, to eat less meat and ultimately die earlier because we're costing us so much money. Well, I want to throw this ugly squirrel instead of an ugly baby. I want to make sure I don't uh, upset any mothers. So unless your kid looks like a squirrel. okay. so let's throw this ugly squirrel onto this mix. 
You know, Michael, when we take a look at this, Reuters uh, reported this week citing Reistad. We love uh, over there at Reistad. Investment in oil and gas on a global scale would only grow moderately this year to $579 billion. That compared to an annual investment rate of 521 between 2015 and 2022 after the 2014, which stood at 887 billion. Now, if we need four trillion in uh, investment, all you can see is a very big bull sitting around the corner for the oil and gas market. Yeah. And I, I, I thought this quote was interesting. The secretary general of the African Petroleum Producers or- Organization, Omar Farouk Ibrahim. Listen to this, Stu. He doesn't pull any punches. We are being intimidated into running away from fossil fuel investment. Mm, mm. Right. Well, here's the thing. Uh, we have the ESG movement that is folding. We had Lego, Michael. We had Lego that had gone to oil-free Lego bricks. They just came out and said that they're going back to oil-based uh, products because uh, the ESG movement is failing. Uh, I mean, even if you have toy manufacturers realizing that they can't use straw to build Legos, you're you're realizing that you're going to have to make a change. So you're going to have to. Let's go to the EPA's illegal power play. Michael, can you believe the audacity of the EPA to come up with an illegal power play, Michael? I didn't see it coming. I didn't see that one coming. The U.S. Supreme Court ruling in West Virginia versus EPA last year. Boy, everybody was just shouting around on that bad dog. It was a historic defeat for the EPA. Uh, ruled that the 2015 Clean Power Plan by President Obama's, that was his big time climate uh, agenda. Do you remember that? was unconstitutional and dramatically limited the EPA's power to regulate. All right. The article is fantastic, Michael. It says you could either have two outcomes. You could either take its lumps and then go work on real regulatory issues, or it could throw everything into the boat and try to go for one last attempt to hit a home run with no bat. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to take the home run and try to try to force their way down our throat. Oh, yeah. And so what they're going to try to do is uh, put these through before next summer so that they can at least be in the court system as a political win for Mr. Biden. Under the proposed rule, this is just Michael. What they're saying is it's called a new source performance standard, an NSPS And they're talking about new performance standards for the grid, natural gas and coal for retrofitting. They didn't even make any rules because they said we're not building anymore, so we're not going to need them. So they're not giving the power companies any directions. Okay, Uh, larger new modified combined natural gas plants, 30% of the nation's electricity would be required to achieve close to zero carbon emissions by either implementing carbon capture and storage, which is CCS, and not if you had the utilization, it'd be utilization if the CCUS, if they could store, uh, sell it 
But you got to drop the utilization because trust me, we don't know what we don't know how to utilize it yet. Uh, there's a lot of diet cokes that people are going to have to drink in order to get that. Yeah. Um, and so um, let's see what was that part? Oh, capture ninety percent of the carbon emissions by 2035, or by switching from natural gas to ninety eight percent green hydrogen by 2038. Okay. Is green hydrogen even ready? No. It, it probably won't be ready until 2040. I, I mean, holy smokes, Batman. No, this is like somebody had a bad dream. They woke up and said, hey, let's get electric buses. Oh, we'll cover that here in a sec. It is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, OK, I, I love Oklahoma. And I love OSU and I love Oklahoma University, but this is so dumb. Even nobody from Oklahoma University could have had anything to do with this. This is so dumb. It's even below them. Below CU. No, it's stupid. Again, you said it all in the beginning. It's all for political wins. They don't really care if it passes. They just need something for President Biden to campaign on. And unfortunately, it, 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 it comes at the expense of forcing a lot of extra, yeah, a lot of extra stuff going on that doesn't need to happen in terms of, you know, you know, all of this new looking at regulation, get everybody stirred up for ultimately nothing's going to happen. Super annoying. Oh, it's just pathetic. And what's happening, Michael, is we're seeing around the world this push, this gigantic, it started with the uh, prime minister of England. And then it got into Shell. This one, Shell, is now under the pressure because they're now saying, hey, wait a minute. Since the prime minister of England said, hey, we got to push it out five more uh, years, all of a sudden, all the big boys, big oil and every energy, uh, total energy has already said it. And Shell, while Swan that's a, a funny name, has already come under pressure um, in an open letter posted this month. Let's see, where is it? Quote, for a long time, this guy was Thomas Brostrom. After less than two years, he was out. He quit. And he said, quote, for a long time, it has been Shell's ambition to be a leader in the energy transition. It's the reason we work here. The recent announcements uh, at and after the capital markets that day deeply concern us, and we can only hope the optics of the CMD uh, announcements are deceiving and that Shell continues its path as a leader in the energy transition. You know, how can they pay for the energy transition if there's no profits? The taxpayers are now not bidding on offshore wind and um there's a whole money paradigm shift changing right now in in the renewables so i thought this was pretty interesting when uh we you and i talked i believe two weeks ago michael shell bp and all these others started following the u.s big oil companies and backing away from renewables i thought this was a pretty good article yeah. And I mean, one thing it's, 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 it's nice to see a company be able to take criticism from internally and turn it into a positive. And I love the quote from, right. from the CEO for an organization at the crux of the NA transition. There are no easy answers and no shortages of dilemmas or challenges. They also saw a spokesperson come out and said, we appreciate our staff that are engaged and have passion about the energy transition and sell. Then a bunch of googly gob after that. But I love that they're standing behind this guy. Right. And these two people are not completely throwing them under the bus because he's right. There is some, you know, 
something's got to go here. If you're going to lean more, you know, they say Shell keeps saying they're going to lean more into operational efficiency. Well, you know what that means. Oil and gas projects. Drill more wells. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you get more oil. So we know exactly what that stands for. 